Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to remind people, go check out DevRev. I've been recording episodes, but I don't have them in an RSS feed yet. So if you go to Facebook and then you find the devchat.tv channel, that's where I've been posting those. They're also on YouTube in a playlist. If you go to devchat.tv slash YouTube. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Camille Lelonic. Yeah. You want to say Hello. hi? Now, you are on episode four, but do you want to remind everybody where we're at since we're now at episode 40-some-odd? Yeah, the previous episode was about blockchain in Elixir, about implementing things related to blockchain, about wallet, Elixir wallet implementation, so things related to cryptocurrencies and cryptography in general. Nice. And uh, this time, we're going to be talking about databases. and. What's interesting to me is I read this article that you wrote that basically when I think of databases, it's like stick data in, pull data out. And you you set it up as a pub sub. Do you want to talk a little bit about how and why you would ever do such a thing? Yeah, because as you said, basically, when we are talking about databases, we usually mean the, the reading and, and writing sides of them because we... We consider databases as a storage for our systems. So these are the, the, the parts of our applications when we store the data. But it turns out that actually Postgres and not even Postgres, other databases as well, have lots of interesting features that we are not using on a daily basis. And one of them are actually this publish subscribe functionality in Postgres which is, in simple words, the, the implementation of publishing and subscribing for some messages, for some events, topics, for some actions happening inside the database. So we don't have to use any external APIs. We don't have to use SQL in the way we are usually using that. We could uh, leverage processing messages, messages to actually listen on some events we may be interested. No, we'll have a link to the, the blog post that you wrote in the show notes, which I encourage people to take a look at. But one of the things I was kind of surprised at with this is realizing that a lot of this functionality that you're leveraging for these Postgres features are already available in Postgrex, the Ecto or the, the Elixir library. And I thought that was really cool. I didn't even know that some of these features were there. Can you just talk about how you your experience with kind of exploring these features in Postgres? You, you said you didn't know they were in that library. I didn't even know they were in Postgres, the, the database. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, what's funny is like, like I did, honestly, I didn't know that those features were in Postgres either. I know that there's a PubSub feature in Redis, but that is not one I've used in Postgres. So like, this is really interesting. And then like, oh, this is, and, and it's already exposed in the Postgres yeah. Elixir library. So that was really cool. So I just love to hear about how you're 
you came to this experience and just what your path to this has been like? Yeah, so basically the Postgres protocol includes the streaming protocol with copy functionality and it's it also implements asynchronous messages and notifications. So it, it basically means that as soon as the connection is established with Postgres, a server can send messages to the client even when, when the client is actually not actively working. And basically, it's not, not a feature of, of Postgres itself. It, it doesn't have to be any particular implementation in any library. It's just a daemon process running on a machine. So it's a matter if your library, if, if your language actually allows you to, to start a daemon program, which then use listen to register on, on the messages. And each time the notification is set, then the daemon program processes it in, in some way we, we implement it too. So it's not like we have to use Postgres or any particular library in other frameworks, in other languages. It's basically to use the, the basic basic daemon process uh, running on our machine. And to be honest, I don't remember right now how I found that in, in Postgres library. I just need to, to look for that. Hmm. Maybe it was, I was just, I wanted to, to use this uh, publishing subscribing system and probably I, I was I was looking looking at the source code of Postgres. If there are features like that or if there are some implementations for that features and it turned out that, oh, there is a feature like that already implemented. So I don't have to write anything on my own. I'm curious to hear what kind of problem you were solving that you thought, oh, this is this is a good solution for this. Like like I'm like what is a good use case for that from your experience that you've used this or or you see other people could benefit from? So, as I said, if we have a daemon program listening to notifications and updating some things, we can bypass the concurrency issues. So, in my particular case, there was a thing that I want to know if some user, if we have new users registered in our application. So instead of writing any application logic and a scheduler, which would actually crawl the database from time to time in, in some periods to check whether the number of accounts changed or instead of extending the uh, endpoint for registration and creating new users or accounts, I, I decided to, to do that on database layer. So I thought that maybe instead of changing the application code at all, I would create a daemon process which would listen on changes on our accounts table, and then that, that process, that program, would perform so some kind of action. And in our case, it was a Slack uh, message notification. So if something changed in accounts table in our database, the, the process that was listening on that would be able to notify our Slack. And we, we immediately saw, saw a message that, okay, 
new account was created, we have new user in our application. And that was my case in general. That is really cool. I like the idea of you're saying it rather than modifying the application code itself to say, oh, I, at, at this point where I'm going to be doing some activity, instead of doing that, you created like even a separate application that uh, can subscribe to notifications or changes in the tables that you're interested in and then act on that. I think Elixir is a really good fit for that. What has been your experience with using Elixir to do that? Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a really nice feature. And I thought about that in the same way you just said that, okay, instead of modifying application code, that would be really, really nice feature. But let's think about it in, in the other way. Because after some time, me or other developers may, may think that what is actually happening how we are getting this information. There's nothing in our code that would do that, but we are receiving these messages, this information about some changes. There's nothing in our code responsible for that. How to debug it? Okay, it's working right now, but what if we really want that feature and that feature doesn't work? How to, how to debug, debug it? Uh, how to, where, where to check that? So... On the one hand, it's it, it it's actually very good, as you said. It's it's maybe tempting to use that because it's a nice feature. We don't have to modify anything. But on the other hand, it may be problematic at some point to actually understand what is happening, where it was implemented, and how exactly it works. Yeah, I can see that. And that's a good point. You know, sometimes we get excited about the new tech and we just talk about how how all the upsides, but it's important to be aware of like, oh, there, there are some cons and there's some potential pitfalls. And one of those that I think that you identified there is when you are getting notified, like in a perhaps a separate application, if your schema changes, like in the, in the normal, like the full like business application, and maybe it's like you're talking about your user table and being notified about users and you make some significant change to the user structure, now you have you're kind of having to manage metadata changes or at least awareness of those changes across two repos or at least two applications. And so that is that is another layer of complexity that you kind of add to that. Yeah, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and and to actually answer your question, because you asked me how, how complex was it to implement that in Elixir, it was actually pretty easy. It was the matter of, of in implementing or, or pulling the, the Ecto and Postgrex library into the project. I didn't even need Ecto at all. I just created Postgrex implementation of, of listening. So it's, it's basically this daemon process, which listen on, on, on the Postgres events. And basically that, that was it. So I would add a simple gen server which listen on, on that event coming from Postgrex and did everything in, in that handle info callback and then basically implemented the, the entire logic there. So the implementation was really easy and, and very quick. Yeah, my, my experience is primarily in Rails and the way that you would solve this in, in that world is you would either have some job queue and we've kind of talked our way around that right where you notify some other process that something happened and then it goes and you know does whatever it does the other way that i've solved this is just by polling and yeah this is so much more elegant one thing that i'm curious about here is we talked a few weeks ago with chris mccord about 
live view. So is there a way to hook this handler up to live view so that it would just essentially stream the changes all the way up to the, the front end of web application with Phoenix? Yes, so if I understand that correctly, it's a matter of connecting with WebSocket. So mm-hmm. if I had to do that, I would just implement the, the WebSocket broadcasting on, or pushing logic inside the, the inside the function, which is responsible for handling events coming from Postgres. So that would be very simple if I understand correctly the, the, the problem you mentioned. Yeah, and it is kind of tough because we're still all waiting for Live View to actually land. That's true. <laughs> That, that's but, true. But I do, I, I think I understand what Camille is saying there, which is, you know, you, he's talking about how easy it was to implement this with Elixir, which is basically creating a gen server that is the subscribed connection. And, and with Postgrex, it's your, you're getting notifications through there. And then in that gen server, you could just send messages to the other gen server that is related to the state of, of the user and and their view that is then just be streamed down. So yes, I'm looking forward to live view as well. And that'll be fun to see all the different applications we can throw at it. Yeah, it's so easy in Elixir when we have this 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 processes out of the box. We don't have to implement anything anything like that. We just pull the what we have in core libraries and we have it running. We don't need to implement anything on our own or using any extra tools for that kind of coming back to your blog post, I really did like, and I do encourage people to take a look at it because you lay it out very elegantly and just kind of building it up. But one of the things I love is just how simple it really is in terms of building this gen server that is when it initializes, it subscribes as a listener and just gets notifications. It's like, it's, and it's a supervised one. So if it, if it dies for some reason and crashes, it'll just be restarted. It's beautiful. And I, I think Elixir is a great solution for that kind of a, you know, that's a great application for gen servers and, and that usage is great. Yeah. And the, actually, in the entire use case, the, the most complex part is the Postgres part, not, not the Elixir part, right? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, so the Postgres part, I mean, you, you, you set up a stored procedure, which is something that I don't see a whole lot of people, at least in the communities that I move in with Elixir, and I mean, even Node, Rails, Ruby, you know, people generally don't use them. I see a lot more of that in like the Java and .NET world. How necessary is that stored procedure that you created there? So actually the stored pro- procedure acts like a notifier. So, okay. so the function is responsible to send a notification, to, to, to notify the listeners, the, the observers or subscribers. So this is what what the function actually does. So nothing more than just notifying listeners. And this function, it's what is important about it is like this function can be called as a as a trigger. So as you as you mentioned, uh, we need to implement the function in the way that could be that could behave as a trigger. So be be called at some kind of event happened in our database. What, what that event is, is actually accounts changed in our case, which is basically the instruction that happens after insert or update on our accounts table. So when such changes happen, 
when, when, when such changes happen, we just call the stored pr procedure, which inside it uh, notifies all subscribers. Gotcha. What if you want to do sort of targeted notifications? So when, when my account changes notifying me or notifying my account admin, but not the whole world. So basically this PG notify function or notify command takes the name of the event to send the entire payload. So if we somehow distinguish events to, to listen on, or if we create some rule that, okay, if that happens, let's send this kind of event, or in some other case, let's send some other event, we could do everything on this event names layer. So if you want to make targeted notifications, we can somehow change the event name, adding there some kind of a oh, unique ID, for example, and make it targeted notifications. Right. So that could perhaps be like changing the event name to be like account activity 12, where 12 is the ID of that account. And then, yeah, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you have to make it a UUID so you can't read it. <laughs> Yes, really long. Uh, but yeah, that makes sense. I am curious about kind of if you've had a chance to experiment with the practical limitations of this. Like at what point does it kind of start to break down? Like is there a number of connections? It's like, you know, this just doesn't working. It's, it's causing problems or we have to scale to a super sized uh, database. You know, like, if, like where are the limits of where you, you've kind of ex experimented and seen Yes, so basically one of the obvious limits uh, mentioned in, in the documentation is that the payload, which is being sent as a kind of message, must be shorter than 800 bytes. So the payload, as you may, may imagine, it's typically a JSON string. It could be anything, on, of course, as a, but sent as a simple string literal. So this is one of not a limitation in terms of what can be sent and actually how much can be sent there. So this is one kind of limitation. The other limitation may be, as you mentioned, number of connections, number of listen, listening subscribers. But it's not that it's not a big issue because what is happening there. Actually, there's a, a single process being notified. This is implemented in the way there's file, actually, called TW cache counters. This is, this is actually how to, how to say that the best. We have, we have a table which is being updated after the notification is being sent so that each of the running process can actually listen on that and listen, subscribe to that changes. So the limitation is basically on the machine level, not at the Postgres itself layer. It's a matter of how many processes can we actually run on the machine at the same time and next to the other running processes. And it's, it's limitation more like a machine limitation, not like a Postgres limitation itself. So how do you find these features in Postgres? Because uh, I'll admit, I'm pretty lazy. So uh, outside of kind of the general use, I, 
I don't go looking for these. And then I hear about them and I'm like, wow. So basically it might be surprising, <laughs> but there was a time when I wanted to write a book about Postgres. I even started it and I already wrote like 12 or 13 chapters. <laughs> wow. So it's not ready yet. And I'm not sure <laughs> if it ever be ready. But it was like I was trying to, to find the most interesting feature of Postgres, especially these features which other databases don't have. And what is actually very interested, interesting in, in Postgres itself. So that was the story. Gotcha. I guess the other question is why Postgres? Because it seems like a lot of people are opting for MongoDB or things like that because they're schemaless. They, you know, you, you can essentially just throw a simple hash or JSON object or dictionary or whatever the heck you want to call it at the data store. And it just, you know, it just sucks it up no matter what the structure is. So Postgres is, is the solution for Elixir, Ector, Phoenix developers, because this is something that comes with, with the framework. Uh, like there, there's a documentation for Postgres. There's the best support for Postgres. Postgres uh, has lots of features and it's quite good when it comes to performance. So it's the database we are maybe not forced to, to use, but this is, this is something we get when we are starting a new project. Uh, when we are trying to write some, when we are trying to to read some articles, to learn things related to databases with Phoenix, and this is like an obvious choice for the very beginning. Do you run your own freelance business, or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, it is kind of established as the default right for a new yeah. project or anything so i'm curious what other kinds of databases you have had experience with just as a comparison point of like a fan of postgres obviously if you're interested in writing a book that's awesome nerd uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i'm curious like what other databases have you do you have experience with that uh, they're able to kind of compare against yes so when it comes to other use cases than just relational database. There are some other available solutions we can use. And for example, if we want to use caching, uh, we would probably go with Redis. The same when we want to uh, scale PubSub, 
in our applications, we would also go with Redis. When it comes to, for example, event sourcing, we could use event store, for example, if we don't want to use Postgres for some reasons, because Postgres may be uh, sometimes too slow. And that's that's basically it when it comes to, to database choices. So I would say Postgres as the major database. We could use Redis for caching purposes, event store for event sourcing. And when it comes to databases, that's basically it. There's also Mongo support and Mongo adapter written by Michal Muskawa. I know that lots of people are using that Mongo as, as a document database somehow schemaless and no, no SQL solutions. I work on a project right now. So you talked about defaults, right? And I just want to come back to that briefly. Because like Rails, I assume it still is, but the default uh, for years was uh, MySQL. Is that still the case, Chuck? That if you start a new Rails app, it starts with MySQL? I don't know. I always start it with Postgres. So. <laughs> but, yes, so, but it, it was always MySQL for me. I started moving to Postgres because of some of the like metadata transactional support. Like, so like I'm writing a migration and it fails halfway through the migration and with MySQL, then I have to clean it up myself. And Postgres, it's like, oh, I, I can do that atomically. Those metadata changes to the tables. And so I love that and I've always used that. But uh, I know with uh, work, uh, my current position, we have a number of different databases that we are using all together. And one of them is because we have a legacy Rails application. So it's a MySQL database. And then we have, uh, we've been moving to Elixir. So we have a Postgres database. And that was one of those times where we have our Postgres application, or I'm sorry, our Elixir application talking to both databases at the same time. And that's, and that, that, I'm just impressed that it works, you know, that we can do that. And we can have multiple repos and one repo can be MySQL and one can be a Postgres. And, and, that, and we also have Redis in there and we have another application that uses MongoDB. And I don't know. So it's, it's interesting. I'm, just, I'm impressed that Elixir and Phoenix and everything lets us have all this choice that we're able to plug and match as is appropriate for our business. Talking to two databases, yeah, that fun. sounds awesome. Oh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but never mind. Yeah. I mean, so there, there are some certain things you have to do, right? I'm and like sure. the, the whole idea is you want only one of the applications to be the owner of a table, right? And it owns the reads, it owns the rights. And then when you're able to kind of, it's like we have this large application, we have to migrate it. It's like a, a, like a multi-year project, right? It's not a huge dev team and we're slowly moving the tech all over. So it's like, well, we can have, we start off with having the Elixir through MySQL reading the database. And then eventually as we move more data responsibility over, then it flips to kind of being the owner of a table. And then Rails application goes and talks to the Elixir application to say, get me the data out of this. You know, now I'm querying or making changes through, through that uh, like Phoenix interface, like a private interface between the two applications. So yeah, it's, it's uh, not something I would voluntarily say, hey, that's a great idea. But it works and it, it's enabling us to do things that, that are important to the business. Mm -hmm. the, the problem I, I usually have with the solutions you described is that 
when I want to use one database from in one application and the same database in the other application, and I want to do some kind of testing on the real database, there's a problem with creating migrations. Because if one application does, does the migration and the resetting part after or before test, so the other application has to some has to somehow know has to somehow know the schema of the database. So I usually have the problem how how not to duplicate the, the schema of the database in both applications when I want to make some kind of testing on, on the data, on the real database. That is true. And, and that is one of those things that is, it can get messy. And so, yeah, I, I don't impose this as like an ideal solution. It is not where you want to stay for very long, but it enables you to kind of do a staged migration. But yes, the testing, especially and like running on a CI server where it's doing, creating uh, testing databases and resetting them, that can be an issue too. So yeah, there are things you have to do to account for that. So do you ever run into problems with Postgres? Because hmm. with most technologies, if you're not running into problems, you're not trying hard enough, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> or you're not pushing yeah. it. You know. Right. <laughs> this is what I wanted to say. So actually, I had a couple of problems with, with Postgres itself. So performance problems, of course. Uh, problems with full text searching, as well problems with not being fast enough in terms of reading or writing, problems with connection pool and connection limit uh, during not only migrations, but also in, in, in regular work. There are some kind of issues we had to keep in our mind and we need we can prevent, basically. I would say that each tool has its own problems. So the same is with Postgres. It's not ideal, but it's the best what we can have, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know uh, I have a, a, someone I've worked with before who had a more operations perspective. He preferred MySQL over Postgres, mainly because from the operations perspective, there's this principle that he calls active, 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 where you can just scale up your MySQL databases just by bringing up additional ones online, like kind of live in a live system. And if you're wanting to scale a Postgres system, like into a cluster, you have to kind of, if I understand this correctly, you have to take down, like stop the cluster and then add more nodes to it and then bring it up. So things like that, it's just kind of, it is one of those limitations. At the same time, adding a column to MySQL when it has many rows, like a million records, it can like take forever. And when it's, it's Postgres, it's like immediate, just due to how internally the data structures are represented. So yeah, there are pros and cons to every solution, every technical solution. But yeah, so I, my personal favorite is still Postgres. Yeah, when it comes to replication, we have logical replication in Postgres, and we have this physical replication in, in MySQL. And Postgres, actually Postgres provides both logical and physical replication as options. But the, the replication protocol in Postgres is somehow maybe not less useful, but harder to, to actually to, to, to use. So when sometimes when it comes to, to replication and when, when we know that in the future our database will be replicated a lot, we would 
probably decide on using MySQL uh, because it provides a better support for, for replication in general. Of course, with the new releases of Postgres, with the new versions starting from, from 10, the replication is very good, but still it's something new. If, if we, we have to use some older Postgres versions for some reason, may have some issues with the, this kind of replication. How about security? How is Postgres for security? So basically we can use SSL for connection to, to, to Postgres. We usually use just regular connection string, which, which has a password and user in, included. We could use Postgres within our infrastructure. I mean, by that, could use, for example, Google Cloud Engine and Postgres installs there. We could do the same with, with AWS and RDS solutions. So we don't have to even expose the, the, our databases outside to, to the world. But if we are using some hosted solutions, some outsourced solutions, we would use probably connection string with SSL as an option there. So this is the only security we can get there, actually. One of the other topics I kind of wanted to touch on is oftentimes in Elixir, we talk about all of the things that are kind of in the box, like that are already built into the Beam and the Erlang ecosystem. And one of the questions that often comes up is, what about amnesia? And so amnesia, if you want to just talk briefly about what it is and, and like even where you see this fitting possibly in, in what choices are available for developers. So amnesia is, is basically is the amnesia, because this is, this is what is under the hood and amnesia is, is a wrapper over that. Uh, it's still based on Erlang term storage. And this is kind of this is basic kind of database we are able to use in our Elixir programs. But what I see is that actually not many people are using that for some reason. When we when we are using that on, on a single node, it's not a problem usually. And very happy to use that on a single node on a single machine. But once we try to, to distribute that, we would probably use some, some solutions based on Cashex, which is available for, for such purposes. That, that would be an alternative for that. Because as far as I know, and what I tried and checked, with Amnesia, there are some problems when we want to make it distributed. So that's why the, the external database or the solutions uh, which are outside our machine externally somehow and can be connected uh, from different nodes and somehow synchronized and that that would be the solution that would be the solutions what we usually need yeah i agree like when when you start to put amnesia on each node in a cluster then it be, it becomes a distributed data problem especially as you're maybe doing a rolling deploy and you're taking down yes. a node and bringing it back up. And so, yeah, I agree that I was kind of wanted to, to, to talk about that briefly to make people aware that, yes, amnesia is an available option. I don't know that it is actually what people want when they're looking for their traditional, what they think of as, you know, web application, SaaS product kind of thing that it may not be the right tool for that. But uh, I had experimented with it at one time 
just trying to see, hey, can I can I use a, a pure all the way through Elixir Erlang kind of solution? And just to see, can I do it? And I started you know, exploring with amnesia. And one of the things I found, and this was a couple of years ago, so this may not be, this may be out of date, is the idea of like when you have multiple databases, like with Ecto, you can say I have a, a dev database, a test database, and a production database. And just by running mixed test, it's automatically using a different database. You know, all, all that database config. I didn't know how to do that with amnesia. You know, so maybe there's a way to do it. But at the time, this was some time ago, it didn't seem very clear path for doing that. And I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm fighting against the grain here. So I just like, you know, I'll, I'll, it was, it's a fun thing to play with, but I'm not going to develop too much code in that solution. Yes. So w- what I believe that is to, to give the best value for, for the listeners here uh, would be to say that let's look at the amnesia. Let's look at the Kashyx as the alternative solutions for what we are using right now, because these two tools are not mentioned very often on the, in, in the blog posts, on the conferences. This is not what I see very, very often uh, for some reason, but these are powerful tools. And I would really recommend to at least look at them and be aware they exist and maybe even use that if if that's that's your case yes it is certainly something people should be aware of just to you know whenever we are encountering different kinds of problems that we're you know with technical challenges it's it's good to know that there are these different tools that are available and one of the ways i've kind of if if i'm remembering this correctly one of the ways i've heard amnesia being described as a good solution was kind of going back to where it was created from and and why and that if i understood that it was Going back to Erlang, and they're you know using phone equipment and routers that are deployed all these different places, kind of almost like standalone devices. And and then the idea with Amnesia is that you are trying to keep routing tables. How am I supposed to route connections to different terminals and 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 calls? And so it was more of like wanting to 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 be used for routing tables and stuff that was perhaps not. It's extremely dynamic data. And so for things like that, I think it's a great idea to be aware of it. You know, like it might have a great, a great place in a NERVS project where you have something that's really embedded. That might be a good place to consider that. So I just wanted, I thought it's in our discussion of databases, I, I do think it is worth still mentioning. So one of the other questions I had for you about Postgres is what are some of your favorite features of Postgres? that over other databases you may have had experience with? I used, for example, PostGIS a lot, which set of features uh, related to geographic things. This is about location itself, about latitude, longitude features, calculating radiuses, distances, some kind operating on some kind of areas, uh, finding the, the, the nearest places, the nearest, the closest people. So these are all things related to to that. And this is very helpful for me. Elixir supports that very well. I was using that over a year ago, maybe even earlier. And the, 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 the support was great for that. And I believe that with new Ecto features, we have even more support for that. 
and I can really recommend using using this Postgres features in, in Postgres. I was also using full text search with different kinds of vectors uh, for searching. It speeded up a lot in our searches. Uh, we had lots of interest, interesting results then. It delayed the, the switch to Elasticsearch. In one of our projects, we even we, we, we didn't decide to switch to, to Elasticsearch because full text search in Postgres was efficient enough. And of course, one of the, the best features we can use is JSON, JSONB, querying, J, storing JSONs, querying JSONs, and maybe indexes on that are not so great if we want to have complex nested, very deep indexes on, on our JSON structures. Maybe it's not the best solution, but still uh, having the possibility to store JSONs, arrays, having that queried very deeply it's it's very very easy to do in postgres right now what i think is awesome like with ecto and is some of those features that are kind of built in where you can say my data type is a map and then that actually gets in, implemented as a json b structure on your table which i think is awesome you know that you can have that whole idea of i have relational data and it has some aspects of it that are like a document and it can be deeply nested kind of JSON structures. Another one I wanted to mention is a feature called HStore. And that is, it's basically a flat key value table. That's so you can have like in my normal table, I can have a field that is an HStore that has like a flat key values, which, so it's like, it's not arbitrarily deep, but what's the benefit is they can be indexed. So you can do faster searches on these different attributes or characteristics that are dynamic. So I think I've been really impressed with how many features Postgres brings to a developer and just how much you we we can get just by using that database. And so yeah, I'm excited about it. And let me let me mention one thing you told is these types in Postgres. Because we most of us probably use Ecto as the library to, to access uh, Postgres in, in Elixir. And Ecto has, has this possibility to implement custom types for our database. I mean, they're not custom in the way we have custom types in Postgres, finally, but there are custom types in the way we can use custom types in our application, our schemas. They are converted later under the hood before inserting or after reading from the database. But in our application, using Ecto custom types, we, we could use these types for, for our schemas. And that's, that's also a great uh, feature, but not of the Postgres, but more about more of the Ecto library. Yeah, I, I've actually used that. One of the things I did, and I'm not saying this is the best solution for everyone, you shouldn't always do this, but I had a case where it made sense to, like with Elixir and Erlang, you can say, what is it? It was where you can convert a term, yeah, term to binary and binary to term is the Erlang call. And so I was able to take a some arbitrary data structure and convert it into a binary and then stick that into, and using Ecto as a custom data type that I could say, serialize this into the database. And then when it loads back out, it's a binary field in the database. It gets reconverted back out and it's a native Elixir type. So 
it's not always the right solution. I wouldn't suggest that for everything, but in, in the cases where I had it, it actually worked and I was able to use the Ecto custom types. So yeah, just like yes. you Some time ago, I wrote a library called Xnumerator, which is the implementation for enumerable types in Ecto. I, I received lots of pull requests, which were, which were merged. So I know that lots of people are using that. And this, this library provides uh, enum type for, for, for the database. And so we can have, for example, message in status of read, sent, received, and so on. So we can make such, such types uh, to be used in our applications. And under the hood, they're stored like a strings uh, or could be stored as integers in our database. All right. Well, anything else we should jump on here before we do picks? Uh, I guess not. All right, let's do some picks. Mark, you have some picks for us? For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Sure do. So this one was the idea. It's, I had an interaction with someone in the community recently. This person kind of starting in that phase of starting their career. They're still in school. And they reached out to me. They, I met them through meetups. And what, so they, I guess the topic is that I'm picking is being professionally proactive. And what this, this uh, young man did is he reached out to me and he's like, he comes out to my office and just wants to learn about like what's it like working in this kind of environment and kind of talking about internship opportunities. And it was just this idea of he was going out actively looking for this kind of connections and making those networking on his own. And I was impressed by that. And then it reminded me of a, someone I'd seen at a previous job. It was a sales guy. He came into the office with no appointment. And because he was currently doing sales in some different kind of industry, and he wanted to be doing sales for a SaaS company. And so he just kind of comes in, it's like a cold call to an office and saying, Hey, I would like to do sales in a SaaS company. And he ends up talking to the VP of sales and he ends up getting the job. But it's just this idea of being professionally proactive. I think it's something that a lot of times as developers, we can tend to be or feel that we are introverts and that, oh, that's just not me. But as I saw with this uh, young man, he would still qualify as a developer type, but he still made that proactive effort to meet people in the community and go to them at their place of office, their place of work. And I, I was just impressed with that. And I think other people, we can benefit from that kind of behavior too. 100% agree. In fact, uh, my Get a Coder Job book, I tell people to do that exact kind of thing. It's like, yeah, just because if you go do the things that no one else will do, you'll get the results that other people aren't getting. That's right. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jump in here with some picks. So my uh, mastermind group, you can listen to us talk every week. We, we do an open call 
on entreprogrammers.com. We we talk every Friday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, and it's on YouTube. It's an entreprogrammers channel on YouTube. The RSS feed's a few weeks behind. We're trying to figure that out. But anyway, so uh, we decided to do a challenge this week where we would do the Pomodoro technique. And we would do eight Pomodoros before noon. And of course, I, I told him, I was like, look, I'm not doing it on Tuesday because I record starting at 10 a.m. And there's just no way I can get it done because I also take my kids to school. Pardon my huge yawn. Anyway, I got up at 4 a.m. and did eight Pomodoros because they wouldn't let me beg off. So I've been using a tool called Kanban Flow. If you're familiar with Kanban, the Kanban methodology, it's kind of an agile development methodology. And uh, anyway, it's, it's basically kind of a Trello board. And uh, I, I really, really like it. It has a Pomodoro timer built into it. And so you just tell it, I'm starting a Pomodoro and I'm doing it on this task. And then off you go. And then you can switch tasks. So yeah, uh, digging that. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I got. Camille, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so from me, like always, and by always, I mean like the last time, uh, something related to psychology and this time book again, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I really recommend that it's about some fallacies we believe in, some how sometimes we are biased and how sometimes we believe is something that isn't really true, but there are lots of arguments and to, to, to make that make us to believe in some things. So it's it's a it it's very good approach to think about something why we are thinking like that and what are the reasons we believe in something actually and how can we be biased and how can we be treated by some arguments which are not true but sounds uh, like they, they they were true. And I really recommend to read that book to understand how and how we are thinking and why we are believing in some things which may not be uh, real. Makes sense. All right, one more question. And I'm sure you brought this up in the last episode, but how do people find you online? Do you blog somewhere? Are you on Twitter? So basically, it's blog.relonek.me. And there's my blog. And yeah, that's, that's a good entry point all of my resources awesome all right well let's go ahead and wrap this up thank you both for being here we will be back next week bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more